Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. <laughs> and this is our, uh, our what we're starting to refer to as Casual Friday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, our, little, our little chat. Uh, yeah, so first we're going to talk about the invention of aspirin because I did not realize... Uh, I had long heard the stories of willow bark being chewed on by people mm-hmm. in ancient times as a, a a treatment for various maladies. But I didn't realize, uh, one, I, admittedly, I am not a chemist, and my high school chemistry experience was, uh, shall we say, less than stellar. The teacher was amazing, but I really struggled with it. And so, like, I think she kind of just kept like, passing me along just out of kindness, because she's like, Holly's never going to figure this out. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and she was amazing. And my, all of my best friends were really smart at it, so I felt like just the stupidest person on earth. But uh, I did not really understand that salicin and salicylic acid are two different things, because in a lot of casual literature that is not, like, a peer-reviewed scientific journal thing, they get used completely interchangeably. Yeah, well, and the thing that our listeners will not know because they will have all been removed from what we recorded, I incorrectly call it salicylin every time I needed to say the word, (laughs) and I had to do it over. (laughs) We always run into words like that for both of us, I feel like. Um, Yeah, I I think it's just probably a word that got in my head wrong at some point and sort of stuck there. Yeah, I also, I was watching several chemistry videos um, trying to kind of wrap my brain around it with mixed success, and Mm -hmm. I kept marveling because sometimes the way that chemists pronounce things are very different from the way I ever learned them, and then I think probably these words are said so infrequently by the general public that nobody really gets too wadded up about pronunciation, (laughs) Um, since most of that work is happening on paper and uh, is being documented rather than just orally um, shared by, like, in the scientific community, they probably don't get as as weird about it. Yeah, I, somehow that reminds me. I was I was taking some transit the other day, and I'm not going to name any names because I don't want to throw any brands under the bus, uh, but there was just a billboard with a picture of the product and the name of the product underneath it, and then underneath that said, it's pronounced, and then a rendering of a pronunciation that did not look like how you would say that. And I was like, for real? (laughs) Why you got to name your product something that requires an explanation for how to pronounce it that is not intuitive based on how you spelled it? I would so love to be a fly on the wall in that marketing discussion. Yeah. Where you know there's some executive way up the food chain that, like, just decided <laughs> this was the name. And then they're all like, well, how do we communicate this? <laughs> we make it part of our brand. And eventually have we were weird... like, we're going to have to give a phonetic spelling out. Yeah. Well, and and when, um, when we were talking about where the name aspirin came from and how the letters correlated with things and just the ending of I-N being popular at the time, Uh, It made me just sort of dwell in my mind for a moment about, like, pharmaceutical naming today and how just bizarre and random some of it can seem. Like, it it does not, uh, like, a lot of the things when when you're watching TV and you're seeing the ads for for drugs, sometimes it's like, did you just put letters into a hopper? 
pull them out one at a time? How did this work? I did. I didn't end up using it as a source, but I did, while working on this episode, stumble across essentially like an article that was written by, I think it was two experts on drug naming. And a lot of it was about like trying to separate yours from others and how sometimes that means that you have to do some things that are counterintuitive. <laughs> I'm like, is this how we get crazy medicine names? <laughs> It's like people are just trying to be different. I feel like this um, reminds me, this is a big leap, but come with me, of wedding dresses in the 1980s where everyone wanted to wear white but also wanted to look very different. So some very crazy designs started happening. No. I feel like it's kind of the same thing. Everybody wants to sound scientific, reliable, you know, like it comes from a place of great knowledge, but also different enough. <laughs> and that's how you get some of the nutty brand names that we have for drugs, is my guess. Some of them are pretty far afield. Yeah. Uh, I'm certainly very grateful that we figured out this whole aspirin game. <laughs> I also didn't realize that, like, to make it more uh, palatable, and there are still people, we should be clear, that even in its its most easily digestible form, still can have trouble uh, with their, their GI tract from it and from anything, you know, different people are going to be sensitive to different things. But I didn't realize that your body is, like, doing such a big lift in terms of converting it from the stable thing that you can digest to the thing that actually delivers pain relief. Yeah, yeah. I'm learn I'm learning <laughs> on this show, <laughs> which is always the ideal. So our second uh, episode this week coming out on Christmas Day was on the rock-hewn churches in Ethiopia at the complex called Lalibela. And I said this at the end of the show, but I want to say it again. Um, as I was working on this, there were times that I thought, I wish this were a video podcast, which I don't really wish because that is so much more um, labor involved than the podcast we currently have. But uh, man, it's hard to convey how amazing those churches were without looking at them. I say were, they're still Yeah, they there. still exist. Uh, yeah, they're spectacularly beautiful and just um, brain-breaking in terms of, like, how they were built. In, in some of the pictures that you will see, you will see folks sort of clustered around the edge of the rim of the trench that circles the churches, just with their feet dangling over. And I look at it and I'm like, man, I am terrified <laughs> at, the, at the idea. Uh, because when I was a kid, I was really scared of heights. And that was something that I was able to move through in my young adult years. But still occasionally, if I'm up in a high place, I get a little anxious about it. And just seeing sort of the, the people, some of whom had come on pilgrimage to just sitting around the edge of this four-story deep rock trench was, uh, I guess, both inspiring and terrifying. <laughs> I can understand that. I think um, I'm more freaked out by the people standing around it. If they're sitting, no. I feel way, I, I think I would be able to sit there. But I would not be able to stand there and lean over and look down without panicking and probably causing my own fall. Yeah, yeah. Sitting seems um, great, though. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow... Uh, that reminds me of when I was um, a, I was a youth. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but it was when Hallie's Comet came through. And my church that I was raised in uh, organized a little trip up to a local mountaintop um, to look at the comet. And this uh, kid who was about a year older than me was so anxious 
um, about the other kids who were kind of up there playing because there were younger kids also. And there was a, a hang gliding ramp and they were hanging around the edge of the, the ramp. And, and he was just so uh, terrified that he was about to witness a tragedy. <laughs> um, so yeah, the other thing that really struck me uh, when I was doing research about this was how colorful and vibrant the stories that were part of it that are part of the Ethiopian Orthodox religious tradition. I really loved the imagery of of King Lalibela being surrounded by bees. Yeah. And I also really loved the whole story about Menelik I going to visit Solomon and coming away with the Ark of the Covenant I kind of want to go see uh, if I can find more accounts um, of how that might have gone down because one of the things that I was uh, listening to about it kind of described it as like that he was either given it or he just sort of removed it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The um, intent of that being a little less clear. And then, as you said, it, uh, it also reminded me of Indiana Jones as I was working on that. Yeah, don't uh, don't open that ark. That's what I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it's treated in an incredibly sacred way. Um, all the arks are. The story is that when the ark of the covenant was returned, it's been guarded by just one monk, um, and a lot of the replica arks that are in uh, the Lalibela complex are similarly like they're in a part of the monastery that only one person or like a very select few people are even allowed into the area uh, where it is kept. So you can look at the UNESCO website, for example. They have lots and lots of pictures of what these churches look like. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 